Welcome to the Exploring Leadership Podcast, where we interview experienced HR leaders and executives to define what the most effective leaders are made of and how to help underperforming leaders transform into the best they can be. Brought to you by Lumen Leadership. Now, here's your host, Spencer Taylor. My guest today is Frank Pepe, who is the Vice President and Global Controller at Impact, hailing out of Salt Lake City. But as we're going to hear, he has much more of a story than, than just Salt Lake City. Uh, very excited to get into the interview, so we'll cut right to that, and we'll have a couple of afterthoughts. Well, all right. Well, let's get into it then. I mean, as far as the, the background and bio is one of my favorite parts of any interview, just because everyone has such a unique uh, and interesting and powerful story. So I'd love to hear, uh, first of all, we've already established you're not a Utahn by birth, yes. so to speak, but you're you're now uh, a Utah as a transplant. So I don't know if that's a good place to begin. Wherever you want to start with your background, I'd love to just understand where you've been before up to up until now. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I grew up in in northern New Jersey, a small town called Wayne. I say small, about fifty thousand people, uh, a commuter city or a commuter town where most people took the bus or the train to New York. Um, you know, definitely. Uh, upper middle class to upper class. So it was a really nice suburb. Um, grew up with obviously uh, two of my parents and two siblings. I have a twin sister, a younger sister. Uh, my dad was self-employed, uh, very successful in the textile industry. And, you know, my mother had had dabbled in, in education. Um, so when I went to college in Eastern Pennsylvania, a small liberal arts school called Muhlenberg College, uh, which meant there was a relatively high price tag on it. My, my father gave me guidance to say, you better ensure that you get a return of, uh, on investment uh, by going to college and choose a major where you're going to get a job. And I remember, I remember looking at what the highest demanded jobs were um, coming out of college when I was uh, starting college. And one was nursing and two was accountant. So I chose an accounting major. And I double majored in in business administration with a concentration in managerial finance. Um, like most people that major in accounting, you would like to get your CPA, uh, and you also need some public experience and public practice. So, you know, you shoot for the stars. And I, I was able to get a job at Deloitte. You know, as as many know, currently one of the big four. Um, and even when I started, it was one of the big four. Some of your older listeners may remember the the big six or the big eight, but, but, you know, there's the big four. I spent four years there and uh, doing public accounting on the audit side, working on retail and manufacturing clients. So a couple of fun ones that everybody would know, um, Toys R Us, Polo, uh, Ferrero Rocher, they make the chocolates and they make Nutella. Um, so it was always tough to go do that audit in October, November, because I would put on some pre-Christmas pounds. Um, <laughs> and I did kind of four years there and I, and I learned a lot and I had a, a lot of great, uh, great leaders there. And I think Deloitte did a great job of preparing me um, with the kind of basic skills that I would need to be a good accounting and finance leader. Um, but after four years, I knew that I wasn't you know, going to be a partner, nor did I necessarily have aspirations uh, to be a partner. I wanted to be in industry. So I transitioned over to a company called CR Bard. CR Bard was a global um, 
was a global medical device manufacturer and distributor. So we had, I believe it was about 10,000 um, SKUs operated all over the world and, and used a decentralized accounting and finance model. When I joined BARD, I joined their management development program, which was a successful program in, in the fact that it allows you to kind of um, bet on yourself and matriculate uh, as fast as you could go, ensuring that you were flexible and adaptable and kind of taking the knowledge from your current role, um, making it better, finding your backfill, things of that nature. So really where I hit my stride in my career was at BARD. Uh, I started there in audit and compliance. Then I worked for Japanese joint venture. Um, so I was based in New Jersey, but working with Japanese company. Then I moved down to Reynosa, Mexico. Uh, I was living in McAllen, crossing the border every day for three years. And I was the general accounting manager uh, of a manufacturing facility. So true middle management role with kind of 360 responsibility. First time managing people, still doing, still reporting upward. Um, from there, I took a lateral move to the cost manager role. Um, where you can focus on a different aspect of accounting. So you were doing a lot more uh, managerial type accounting. So setting standards, variance analysis, make first buy, cost improvement, you know, setting budgets, uh, things of that nature in the plant. Um, also during that time, I started, uh, I had already gotten my CPA earlier in my career. I also wanted to kind of illustrate the knowledge I had gained. So I got my CMA. And then, um, you know, I'd worked with my leadership team and said, I'm, you know, I'm ready for my next step. I like to be kind of a, a, a leader and really kind of grow those skills. So uh, I had my first true um, leadership position on paper when I went to Juarez, Mexico next. Uh, I was the controller there. So I had uh, all aspects of accounting and finance rolling up to me for a manufacturing facility that was about 800 people uh, and about uh, you know 50 million in COGS contributing to about 200 to 250 million in revenue. Um, I took a, I don't know if I want to say detour or, or trip, but we, we acquired a company in Rochester, Minnesota. So I never formally lived there uh, or changed my license, but uh, I spent a, quite a bit of time in Minnesota on an acquisition, which rounded out you know my skill set. And then I got moved to Utah um, at CR Bard as uh, the number two finance professional at a $1.2 billion global division, mostly in the vascular access space. Uh, so when I was there, responsible for all aspects of uh, operational accounting, uh, FP&A, um, and, uh, and uh, corporate accounting, um, and then had kind of dotted line responsibilities for the manufacturing plants um, that rolled up into us from a COGS and a variance perspective. When I moved to Utah, uh, shortly had to be within a couple months of getting here. I uh, that company was was sold to BD, and you know I had now put in 13 years. I'm a CPA and a CMA. I said, you know, let me try something else. I've done the large, the large corporation, um, and I I loved Bard. They they were nothing but honest. Uh, they gave us the responsibilities, or the responsibility and opportunity to grow. Um, so you know, had Bard existed in its current iteration, I probably would have never left. Um, and that's nothing against BD. It's just, you know, a different way to, to manage and develop. So then I went to Unique, and that was my first opportunity as a, as a vice president. So I was the uh, VP of Finance, Corporate Controller, and then later in my tenure there, a treasurer. Spent three years at Unique, 
And uh, when I was th- when I was hired, it was because Unique had just gone through an equity transaction where Cody, a um, global CPG brand, purchased uh, a majority stake in Unique. So kind of turning us around from a very successful private company to building the infrastructure to operate as a public company with, you know, three-day close, crisp financial reporting, getting audited, implementing controls, um, you know, getting us from where we were to that was a lot of my time there. Uh, and then during my time there, Cody then spun us off uh, and sold their portion back to a founder-led ownership group. So I went through uh, another leadership change and kind of strategic change of where we were looking. And when we went back to being a private company, a lot of what I built wasn't uh, was still good from a governance perspective, but wasn't necessarily needed. Um, and we were more looking at operating under a, a lean uh, you know, or lean principles, less heads, um, more efficiency. You know, uh, you can get close, but you don't need to spend your time on perfection. Um, so, in the last eighteen months, that's that's where I had kind of recreated myself as as driving a lot of the cost improvements, leaning out of organization, implementing software, you know, RFPs, and focusing on, on cost reduction. And then, um, you know, after doing that for a little while. I, uh, I wanted to start to dabble to see what was out there. And knowing that the technology space was really big in Utah, I started looking at technology. Um, again, hope, hoping to stay in Utah because though I have no ties to the state, I've really enjoyed it. And uh, in in looking for technology companies, I found one that was based back in New York, um, full circle, uh, right in the Empire State Building. It would be a 20-mile drive from where I grew up. And uh, wow. that's found impact. So I'm here now, just just been here for a very short period of time, um, but really enjoying it. Well, what a story, man. I love it. You were part of a management development program. I praise Bard for this and I praise the leaders at Bard for this all the time. Because to me, though there was always planning and iterating, it wasn't so formal um, that it became rigid and, and it wasn't so formal that it potentially allowed people to grow who didn't necessarily deserve it. Um, I always called it like betting on yourself. So one, you had to be flexible and adaptable um, to get these opportunities because I wouldn't have had the opportunity to run a manufacturing facility had I stayed in New Jersey because nobody does that in New Jersey anymore. Um, but two, Bard moves you when you're ready and tries to find tries to make sure you have a well-rounded skill set so that sometime after 6 to 8 years you're capable of being a VP and a future leader. So I came from an audit background with a CPA and I started in internal audit. So I had some corporate experience, I had some controls experience, I had some audit experience. Bard leaned into that strength and said, "Well, how do we how do we supplement his current knowledge and grow his knowledge so that in six to eight years, you know, he can, he can ultimately be a VP or a leader of the organization. So by going to Japan, I'm getting international exposure. I'm getting joint venture experience. And it's also my first time going from, you know, the audit world where you're kind of reviewing and providing guidance to actually doing, you know, there's a challenge when you switch um, from, you know, uh, the audit side to actually um, closing the books each month as a fine, as a financial analyst. Um, learning from there and going down to Mexico in a manufacturing environment gave me exposure to, uh, you know, a lot of the cost accounting principles that are very, very important for Bard. Um, when we were driving down, 
uh, cost by 70 to 100 basis points every single year for 40 years. It also gave me the ability to, to that position kind of round out my operational experience. I had, um, you know, payroll dotted lining up to me. I had accounts payable. I had intercompany. Those are things that are not necessarily glorious or glamorous in the accounting world, but I think helps build uh, a set of uh, strong fundamentals that is going to help you and you will need to have that inherent knowledge in the future. I moved over to the cost accounting role. It got me comfortable with our budget cycle, our variance analysis, standard setting, you know, gave me the ability to get a CMA. And then when I moved to the number two role um, here in Salt Lake, um, you know, that's where I was really running a deep team and putting together uh, all of those skills while then starting to build up my management acumen by sitting in you know, with our, our current VP and understanding how he analyzes deals and how he liaises with the business and how he provides internal customer service. Now he drives a, a pretty large team to get things done. So um, I liked the fact that you had to bet on yourself. And I liked the fact that it wasn't the same path for everybody. You know, I have great friends that came in with a, a plethora of, of cost accounting experience and maybe took a different path. Um, and, and you didn't, you know, your path, you knew you had to do a lot, you knew kind of the time frame, but you didn't know where it would take you. And that was exciting. And I think, you know, I was never involved in some of the, uh, management development meetings where the VPs, uh, and global controllers and, and, you know, and things like that were sitting down and making those decisions. But when they, you know, communicate how they make those decisions and the process they go through, they really did use the guardrails of a management development program supplemented by deep understanding of who they were growing and how they were growing that person to provide an individual path for everybody. And it drives, you know, it drives excitement and retention as well. I know that if I can go do a good job and learn something, that there's an opportunity for me to grow, even if the challenge was going to Mexico or uprooting your family, or doing something you hadn't done before, you knew that the BARD team trusted you to um, grow into the role that they were giving you. And in return, they were going to get a more developed future leader um, who really had a strong connection with the organization. Well, I just love that. I I love just how you've highlighted that it's about the individual, not about a cookie cutter program where it's like, here are the eight steps of the program. You got to go through all eight and then you're going to get a certificate at the end. And I I think there are some wonderful programs out there like that, that various universities and private consulting firms and places put on that can maybe serve a different purpose. But in the context of a specific company developing leaders for their context and their, the future version of their organization, I think the way you've described it is I can't think of any any better approach because yeah. you've got to tailor it to the to the organization and to the individual, and it sounds like they just did a beautiful job of that. They really did, and I think you know, I don't know how scalable it would be to a really large organization. So we were about four billion in revenue. I would say at any given time and any given level, there were maybe uh, fifty or so, fifty to sixty finance professionals at various levels um, mm-hmm. across the globe as part of the program. Um, so, you know, if you were a, a $50 billion revenue company and 10 X that, you know, could you manage that with 600 people? I don't know, but I think for the size that we were, I think it worked perfectly. Um, and aside from the informal aspect of making sure that everybody was filling in the gaps that they needed, uh, you know, there was 
two, I guess, global meetings uh, on an annual basis where you got together with everybody that was in the program in a location. Um, there was great training. There was great communication about some of the corporate initiatives. So you never felt like you were on an island. And then there was individual support from a lot of the leaders because um, they had all been in the program. So when you look at how to develop at Bard and you see, you know, four of the five highest people in finance had relocated multiple times to grow their skill set and had gone through it, you also trusted it. Um, and then, you know, I'll say lastly, just like we talk about leadership, uh, I think the leaders at Bard, because they were invested in everybody's growth and took really a personal view, because no two paths were the same, they did know about you and cared about you. Um, you know, there was many times where I would be having a tough day because I moved my family to El Paso right after living in McAllen and I'm crossing the border every day and I'm gone for 16 hours um, because I'm driving an hour and a half each way and, uh, and working pretty long days. And, um, you know, you just, you don't have the EQ every day, but I always knew that there was a, a handful of leaders that cared about my development. Um, you know, I don't know if they're listening. I don't know if we name names here, but uh, I, I always like to reference, uh, you know, Steve Kozan, Herman Cueto, um, Tom Bennett, Russell Stevens, Corey Neuruder. These are all people that were various levels in the program or leaders at, at, at bar that had kind of helped me through the years um, by just being somebody to talk to about real world problems that we were seeing when we were boots on the ground and, and how we solved them. And, and that's great. You know, it, everybody was invested in everybody's development. And I know when we kind of prepped for this, uh, we looked at, you know, what do you want to take away from some of those leaders and really how they took a personal approach to development and how they were always there to talk, even when times were tough um, or it was busy or, or challenging for them. I've, to, you know, to this day, as I've tried to develop my leadership brand, uh, I try to, to roll that out on a regular basis. I don't care if you're a finance clerk, you know, temp AP or part-time AP person, or one of my direct reports as the assistant controller or director of accounting. Um, I want to make sure that you feel valued in your role. You're developing in your role and you always have other opportunities to grow. Um, and I want to be there to listen and help get you through the day. Um, and sometimes that just means being nothing more than having the ability to listen. Sometimes it means removing hurdles. Sometimes it means giving guidance or tutelage. Um, you know, and sometimes it means other things, but I think having that flexibility uh, to listen to everybody that needs it and help them develop uh, is something that I learned from kind of uh, my, my nine years at Bard. Well, I love that you just talked about listening because it's, it's like the most overstated but underrated, I think. <laughs> like, you know, everybody talks about listening, but it's really easy to just be like, yeah, yeah, I got it. Um, and it, ironically, that's not the point, right? It's not just to hear the idea, but it's it's more challenging to listen than maybe some people realize. So maybe we can dig into that for a minute. Like what, uh, and, and maybe again, you may have a specific leader that did this especially well, or uh, or you've developed an approach yourself that you feel has worked well. Like how do you make sure you're not doing one of these where it's like, uh-huh, and then you got your phone and you're, you know, like that's obviously not really listening. Um, when is it most important to listen and how do you approach it? I guess maybe is a, a good question. Yeah. I think if you're spending time to, to get, uh, or if you're spending time with an individual on a one-on-one -on -one basis, 
to help them develop or help them solve through the problem or solve a problem, I think it needs to be active listening. So, you know, you referenced picking up your phone. You can't do that. You referenced emails, uh, checking emails. You can't do that. You need to close the door and you need to take whatever time it is and look at the person face to face, eye to eye, um, and really let them feel that you're engaged. So that's during the meeting. But what really helps people feel comfortable is subsequent to the meeting, if you can address their concerns in a timely manner or have timely communication as to why their concerns or development issues haven't been addressed yet, I think that's where you start to build the trust and people know that going to you with situations, issues, questions, or opportunities to develop actually um, bear fruit. So if somebody comes to you about a problem in the workforce that they're dealing with, not only do you have to active listen, actively listen, you have to react. And you have to illustrate that you're reacting um, to be a good leader. If somebody comes to you and has a development opportunity, um, you need to react. And whether that be allocate certain training funds for them, tell them to take a day to go do courses, find courses for them, find a leader for them, you know, that's how how you active. So it's not only the listening aspect; it's active listening and reaction. I, I think is what drives leadership. And I don't know, you know, I, I can't. I don't know if I can attribute that to one person because I, I've had a a good set of leaders that when I've had problems um, and had rough orders, they've reacted timely. And you know, you jot down in your notes like, "Hey, when I'm in that person's shoes, I know how that made me feel. I felt heard." Um, I felt that like my time wasn't just wasted to check a box. And I felt like there was some type of resolution coming out of going to my leader, um, whether it be getting the desired learning I need, removing the hurdle, having somebody to talk to, you know, and, and it made me uh, a better employee um, by having that, you know, when I was not in a leadership. I love this so much. And, and you're my hero because I just, I see so often, like specifically when we go into a company that, Let's say they, they really want to become scalable. That's one of our focuses. Um, and I ask key leaders often, are you doing one-on-ones with your people? And sometimes, usually they're like, yeah, we do one-on-ones all the time. Uh, and I'll dig into it a little bit with a follow-up. Okay, well, tell me about that. What does it look like? It's like, well, I, I, pass, uh, I pass Julie in the hall every morning and we have our coffee and we say, hey, good morning, have a great day and how are your kids? And that's our one-on-one. You know, and that's not a one-on-one, right, <laughs> at all. It's great. Like, you need to be friendly, but it's not a one-on-one. Uh, so I just love that you you illustrated that very nicely for us uh, to point out that a one-on-one means phones off, email closed, you know, what just present and focused and listening. That's first half of the equation. But that will even fall flat if the second part is not in place, again, which you did a beautiful job articulating which is the action that takes place after the listening happens to demonstrate that I hear you and I'm willing to go to bat for you or align resources for you or clear out the road ahead for you or whatever that is. Like that's the power I think of, of true listening. So I just love what you pinned it here. And I'll tell you just kind of diving into that one-on-one aspect as well. I think as, as immature leaders or when you're trying to find your leadership style, a lot of people focus one-on-ones on tactical and we fall into just making it a task list or a review. Um, true leadership doesn't come from task management. It comes from making sure we either have times set aside for part of that one-on-one or maybe a specific one-on-one to talk about those development issues. And sometimes it requires a leader to just 
you know, <laughs> uh, close the book in a sense and say, hey, we're not talking about tactical. We're not talking about project or strategic. Let's talk about you. You know, how did you manage situation X that I saw happen? Or, you know, how are you feeling about development here? Or what what future opportunities interest you that we should start building for now? Um, so so I think another thing I like to communicate to everybody is, is, is a good one-on-one also is developmental in nature. Um, there is clearly a need for the tactical one-on-ones just because of how fast-paced uh, and how dispersed we are as employees. And I think that helps run the day-to-day, but it doesn't doesn't necessarily help from a leadership or development perspective. Well said. I, I absolutely love it. So I'm curious if uh, we, we've talked mostly about kind of the bright side of leadership, so to speak, just the, the good stuff, which is awesome and it's been so valuable. H- have there been some key lessons you've reflected on of kind of the the dark side, so to speak, of, of I don't ever want to be like that? Again, in, in this case, I love that you shared names earlier because it was yeah. all good stuff. <laughs> we don't have to share names in this context and throw rocks at anybody. But I do think it's so powerful to to learn yeah. just deeply from those experiences. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think one of the, the characteristics I've seen from a leader that I didn't, or a leadership trait that I didn't necessarily love um, was kind of taking responsibility for your team. Um, a couple times at multiple points in my career, I was on teams where things went south. Um, and it's challenging to be at an organization or a project or a job or a role when things are not going well. Um, and in that point, a good leader has to shield their team um, from you know some of the criticisms, some of the stress, some of the failures, uh, and own that so that their team can continue to move forward uh, and feel like they can do what they need to do, um, you know, without kind of getting the the collateral damage. So, uh, you know, there's been a couple instances, uh, both earlier in my career, where I was on teams and there was challenges and, you know, direct leaders uh, or even indirect leaders of levels above, you know, were immediately, for for lack of a better term, as things were not going well, would would either directly point blame at individuals that worked for them um, or indirectly point blame uh, at individuals that, that worked for them. And, and being that individual, you know, it, it's not been all hunky dory for me. I've had a lot of challenges, um, but being that individual a couple of times does not make you feel great. Um, and then you're like, why am I going above and beyond? This is a challenging environment right now. I'm already sacrificing time on my, you know, family and time, you know, on my health and time on my personal well-being for this short-term kind of flex up of efficiency. And not only is there no credit, not only are we not succeeding, which happens in business sometimes, but I'm now also getting, um, you know, negative feedback and really no protection. Um, And as somebody earlier in their career that wants to grow, your mind immediately races to, has this damaged my ability to, de- you know, to develop effectively? Do people look at me in a different light because I didn't have the right protection? Um, so, you know, not having that was definitely something I learned along the way and said, I'm never going to point blame at anybody that works for me. You kind of have the, the the two sides of the coin. You know, when you're talking to the team, there's the guidance, you know, the effusive praise. Um, you know, the, the empathy for, for all the time that they're putting in the understanding of how hard the work is. Um, 
And then, you know, when you're going upward, you're talking to leadership or, you know, everybody has a boss. You're talking to your boss and your leaders and you're saying like, hey, these are the reasons that it happened objectively. There's no individual to blame. You know, I own this. I, I, I'm the one that needs to either manage resource capability, manner better, or better manage prioritization, um, find the solution through kind of co-staffing or, or temporary staffing, um, or set better deadlines so as not to put the team in that position. And I think that as a leader, if you can find that balance of keeping the team motivated, and when something does fail, evaluate why it fail, uh, failed uh, or didn't have the desired result or timeliness, you know, communicate upward what you could have done differently and learning from that, I think is much better than the alternative of, I'm sorry that we're not done. Frank didn't do this. Or I'm sorry about this mistake. Uh, Frank was really struggling. Like nobody said Frank ha- had made the mistake, but you can indirectly say, you know, I'm sorry about this. And then pointing to a person, just it's not, that doesn't feel good. It doesn't get anybody in the state of mind where, where they want to trust you and they want to continue to work for you. Boy, I, yeah, once again, just uh, so potent and, and valuable. I love this. Um, so internally, like we, we call this killing the hero. Um, we have this thing that we're, we're uh, continually developing it. It's called the leadership leverage ratio. And it's simply team over hero. There's a little bit more to it than that. But in its basic sense, it's promotion of the team, like building the team and helping the team succeed. And then the, the denominator, the hero, who gets to be the hero? So as you've described it, if the leader gets to be the hero all the time, and if there's a failure, the team gets thrown under the bus and it's Frank, you know, it's, it's Jim's father or whoever screwed up, even if it's true, that person, uh, is dramatically diminished just as denominators work in fractions, right? I mean, if, if it's over two or over 10, it's a huge difference in the outcome uh, of the formula. So I, I just, I love that element of what you've just talked about, that it just shows the, the value of killing the hero in yourself, so to speak. Uh, not that you want to be like low confidence or, or low clarity on, on the success, but that you want to promote your team and help them uh, be acknowledged for the the thing that they are, the valuable asset they are to the company. And the great thing is that most of the time, that means they trust their leader. They'll, they'll do anything for their leader. They don't complain about 18 hour days if that's necessary, you know, whatever it is, they're just all in. And I, and it's funny that you bring that up because I had rolled this out as I was developing my leadership style at Unique. And I had um, a spectacular team there. Um, there was some turnover when I first got there, um, but but the team that I ended with at Unique, you know, I can give them nothing but praise. Uh, my one senior manager, um, hard worker, you know, somebody that I see great things for in the future. She said, Frank, I have no clue how you don't press us at all, and you motivate us to work through challenges on a regular basis even when I have to put in 14 or 16 hours and we feel good about doing it for you. And I said, well, you know, you're the people getting the credit because you're doing it. I'm just providing guidance. Um, And I said, the fact that I think, you know, that you are getting credit and you are getting opportunity and visibility to the greater organization, um, you know, is what's motivating you because you know that that hard work is going to pay off. So I didn't say it as eloquently as you with the leadership leverage ratio. And I really do like that. And when we meet up one day for, uh, you know, for a lunch, I think uh, I want to dive into that more with you so I can do some learning. But yeah, I definitely think that way. And I had seen a benefit um, in doing that. Because look, I mean, 
everything's under your responsibility. I've, I've matriculated to a position where I'm confident and I don't need to go out and prove to people, you know, what I'm getting done and, and steal um, credit from team members who really are the, you know, the boots on the ground completing projects on a regular basis. Uh, that's fantastic. And I think you said it so well. I'm curious. So kind of bringing it in for a landing, so to speak, as I like to think of it, uh, we've, we've already got a, several candidates for action, you know, as far as the one-on-one side, uh, kind of this the style of leadership that gives credit to the team first and forever. Um, like what, what, what rises to the top for you from everything we've talked about? What's something that a listener who's in a leadership role or wants to be in a leadership role can grab a hold of and go and put to work this afternoon or morning or whatever time it is for them? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, for me, the one-on-one and the listening and being conscious of what's going on, I think that can change anybody, anybody's leadership style overnight. That doesn't require a ton of reading. That doesn't require, um, you know, big courses that requires you to prioritize your people and their needs over work output. Um, because by prioritizing your people and their needs over, you know, this air quoted work output, you're going to get more done as an organization. Um, if they feel comfortable, motivated, they have the ability to grow, they feel safe. So you can, any leader out there tomorrow can do that and say, from now on, I want to make sure I have an open door policy. I want to make sure I'm listening to my team. I want to make sure they're comfortable communicating with me. Um, and I want to make sure from a one-on-one sense, um, when they're, when we are having formal one-on-ones that I carve out time for development, not just tactical and or strategic. Um, and you would be surprised the dividends that get paid from that. A wise person once told me, um, if you take care of your team, um, they'll take care of the responsibilities. So um, I've kind of lived by that. And, uh, you know, it's counterintuitive to new leaders to say, I have so much to get done. I can't sit for 45 minutes and, and, and understand or solve this problem or be a sounding board. But that 45 minutes is going to create hundreds of hours, thousands of hours uh, of goodwill and performance from the person who's reporting to you and is looking for that guidance. And I, the way I wrote it down here, and you said it, prioritize people over work output. And then the end of that is, and your work output will actually go up uh, yes. versus if you, which is, it does seem counterintuitive, right? It's like, well, no, no, I can't, I got to go tend to the widget or tend to the, the report or tend to the whatever thing yeah. needs to be done. But that's, I mean, that's not leadership. That's necessary for an individual to do. But the leader is responsible for the people themselves and help, helping them feel great about life and what they're doing and having the energy and motivation and clarity and and all those things that you again you've talked about throughout the interview. So anyway, I just love that. Prioritize people over work output and work work output will be higher than ever. So fantastic. Any final thoughts, final words of wisdom, Frank? You've been such a, a blessing today. Thank you. Yeah, I would say I, I um people have asked me asked me this and you know, about how I've gotten to where I've gotten and, you know, kind of another trait of leadership. And uh, I always like to end end with this little anecdote, which is say yes to everything. Um, there's a lot of times that I was put in roles or positions that I might not have had the uh, skill set or background or, or tactical ability to do, but great leaders trusted that I could grow into that opportunity. And a lot of why I am where I am today was following that mantra of just saying yes. So to everybody out there, 
um, you know, that's looking for an opportunity, looking to grow at their current organization, applying for jobs at new organizations, um, you know, thinking about going to take a course or a test or get a certification, um, though it may be challenging, learning a new language, say yes to everything. You'll figure it out and it's going to create dividends for you and your career growth. I want to extend my deepest thanks to Frank Pepe for investing his time with us on this episode. Uh, so much power in his comments and advice and uh, sharing his experiences. Uh, hopefully, it gives you, the listener, some time to reflect and think of your own approach to leadership. I love especially the, I think of it as just kind of the listen up principle uh, of what listening really looks like. Uh, the thing that really has stood out to me, I'm, I'm editing this a day or so after our interview, and I've just been thinking quite a bit about that principle of taking action as a result of listening. So it's like, it's one thing to hear someone and to be empathetic in, in your response and to give nonverbal cues that you are present and you're not on your phone and all those sorts of things. But I think it's an entirely new level or no, another level uh, to take action as a result of what was shared, to go and advocate for that person, to have their back, uh, to take uh, to, to make decisions on their behalf that correlate with what was shared. And that's that's listening in its truest sense, I think. I also want to give credit to my good friend, Brad Fisher, who is the one who came up with the leadership leverage ratio. And I'm so grateful to him. Uh, we've had a chance to do a bit of collaborating around that. And I truly feel it is absolutely brilliant and has so much power in thinking about, even just at the simplest level that was shared during the interview, this idea of team over hero. And Brad often says, kill the hero. <laughs> like you gotta take the the uh, the wind out of your own sails as the hero of any victories, any wins of your team, make sure that they get the credit. And the reality is you can achieve meaningful results. This is more my opinion. You can achieve meaningful results while taking the credit, but ultimately there's a glass ceiling or there, there's a limitation. Uh, there's kind of a, I guess, a terminal velocity or a, a maximum pace at which you can, can uh, progress and a maximum impact if you choose to be the one to take the credit and throw your team under the bus when necessary. I've talked with uh, leaders where uh, they've shared examples of cases where the person who had that style was able to be successful but as we dig into it, in terms of reputation and true impact and influence that helps everyone around that person want to be better, do better, give their best, kind of like Frank talked about those long days, uh, it, it doesn't happen uh, in that type of setting where the hero, the denominator is a larger number that the leader themselves is the one taking the credit. So I hope that you, the listener, have had a chance to reflect and are now resolved uh, to move forward with one clear action, whether that be one-on-ones, active listening, or thinking more about this leadership leverage ratio and killing the hero in yourself. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Exploring Leadership Podcast. To access free videos, leadership tools, case studies, tutorials, and more about how to engage your leaders at the next level, visit lumenleader.com. We'll see you next time.